0: All right, man, glad to see y'all, really am super pumped to be back in First Corinthians. Uh, thankful that Pastor Justin was able to bring you such an amazing word last week. Aren't you thankful for Pastor Justin? Won't you just show your appreciation to Pastor Justin? Uh, man, and thank you for letting me share just a little bit about my trip to the Dominican. Uh, looking forward to what the Lord would have as we join him on mission. If you were alive during this time, you're really old. But back in 1886, um, 1886, and, and then all the way up until 1892, there was a man by the name of John Pemberton. And he had invented a new drink, and he wanted to get it out there. His business partner was a man by the name of Frank Robinson. He said, hey, listen, if you really want to market something, a name with two C's, would be really good for advertising. So can you think of a name of a drink that has two C's in it? Absolutely, Coca-Cola. So Mr. Robinson went home and he wanted a trademark and he, and he wanted people to recognize his product. So he hand wrote the, the letters that you see. He handwrote the name Coca-Cola and he brought it back to the company. And all agreed, man, that it was awesome. And all agreed that it was good. And so all throughout the years, that has been the Coca-Cola logo. It's hardly ever changed. There are two things that the Coca-Cola company over the years resisted to change. Number one is they have resisted to change the brand name. And they've also resisted to change the recipe. If they ever did change it, they always went back to... So Coca-Cola then began to market itself in many ways. And in the 1930s, it was marketed as a tonic for hard times. After World War II, it was marketed as the symbol of happiness in good times. In the 1960s, you may have remembered this if you were alive in the 60s. There was this thing where Coca-Cola helps the world come together and sing in perfect harmony. Some of you remember that. In the 70s and 80s, it was marketed as have a Coke and a what? Smile. Two things, though, have never changed as they have promoted Coca-Cola. Number one is what is on the outside of the bottle? And secondly, what's on the inside of the bottle? So now that you're all thirsty, let me remind you of something and show you where I'm headed. The word gospel appears in the New Testament 76 times. It appears 60 of those times in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Our English word comes from an old English word, meaning good story or good news. The Greek word euangelio, which we get the word gospel from, is where we get our words eulogy or evangelism or evangelical. You can hear it. You can hear it in there. But you see, just like Coca-Cola, the gospel is similar in that what's on the bottle has to match what's on the inside of the bottle. And there's a danger of labeling things. There's a danger of churches or movements or ideas or programs being labeled as gospel on the outside. But what's on the inside is not the gospel. Many people say this or that is a gospel issue. We should be doing this because it's a gospel issue. We should stand for that because it's a a gospel issue. But really, what's inside the bottle, no matter how we market it? You see, the gospel does not change, and it cannot change, or it isn't the gospel. The Corinthian church then was being bombarded by many things that were claiming to be the gospel on the outside, but it wasn't the gospel. Paul says we have to keep the recipe the same. We can't change what's on the inside or it isn't the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul says the gospel is of utmost importance. It's of first importance. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about the three priorities that God has established for his gospel message. So I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. You'll find a copy of God's word somewhere around you, maybe in the seat pockets underneath the chairs. Maybe your neighbor has one. Maybe you have it on your phone. And lastly, if that's not going to help you, we've put it up here on the screen. So I wonder if you would stand with me as I read verses 1-11 through from 1 Corinthians and we honor the reading of God's Word. God's Word says these things. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren. What does he say he makes known? The gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a good place to say amen. (laughs) And his grace toward me didn't prove vain. But I labored even more than all them, yet not I, but what, church? The grace of God with me. Whether than it was I or they, so we preach, and you what? May God bless the reading of His word, you may be seated. Here's the first thing that God says we can keep the priority of repeating the substance of the gospel of Jesus. We can keep the priority by repeating the substance, repeating the substance of the gospel. In this text, verses 1 and 2, I think are the theme. I think they're the, the linchpin, which this whole text kind of falls out. So go back there and look at verses 1 and 2. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you receive, which you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach, unless you believe in vain. Paul again calls them, if you noticed, brethren. He wants to remind them that they have been saved and made, brethren, by the gospel, and that they're family because of the gospel, and it's also his way of expressing affection for them. He says, I preached the gospel. If you would look there in your text, and it's important that you do so, I want you to hear how the original text really says these words. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I gospeled you. That's what he says. The gospel which I gospeled you. There's a noun, and then there's a verb. It's important to notice that the verb is in the middle voice. That means that the subject participates in the action. In other words, all of us are going to have to be about preaching the gospel. And Paul was reminding them that when he came to Corinth, and remember, Paul was most likely the very first Christian to ever step foot in Corinth. And when he came to Corinth, what was the first thing that he did? He preached the gospel. In verse 3, he says this: For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received. Paul says he delivered the gospel. To deliver means to hand over, to put in someone's hands. Paul, it's almost like he's saying this, I came and I put the gospel in your hands, I put the gospel in your ears, I put the gospel in your minds, knowing that the gospel would get to your heart and change your life. But notice Paul delivered it, he didn't design it. He communicated it, he didn't change it. The Corinthians are evidence of what happens when we keep the recipe of the gospel, When we don't mess with the gospel, we just simply deliver it, people's lives are changed. In verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Paul made the gospel the most important thing. In other words, think about it like this. If you had five minutes with the apostle Paul, you would not get out of his presence without him telling you the gospel. If you were hanging around Paul, just, just hanging around, doing crazy activities, before you left, Paul would make sure that you knew about the gospel, It was of first importance to him. Paul says, it's the message that I received. Paul didn't invent the gospel. Paul didn't come up with this cleverly devised thing that that helps people know the Lord. He simply proclaimed what he received from the Lord and the other apostles. So then the question needs to be asked, Paul, what's inside the bottle? I mean, then what is the gospel, Paul? Well, thankfully, he answers it. He says in verse 3, the second part. He says, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I would be paying attention right here. Because when you and I stand before the Lord of glory, here's something He's going to ask you. What did you do with my gospel? Because that's why He gave it to you, was to tell other people. This is really primary of importance for everybody in this room, because everybody in this room will be held accountable for what you did with the gospel. So pay attention so that you can no longer have the excuse, I don't know how to share it, and I don't know what it is. So here it comes. Just, just hang on here. I'm just trying to help us, right? <laughs> I'm trying to help you, church. He says, Christ died for our sins. The gospel starts with Jesus dying on the cross. Listen, my, my preaching professor used to say it this way. On the cross, Jesus was not a martyr dying for a cause. He was a savior dying for sins. His death was a satisfaction on the just demands of God against our iniquity. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, it says this. For the wages of sin is death. But what does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. Everyone that has ever lived, everyone that ever will live, has thought, done, said some things that are displeasing to God. We've not done some things that God said we should do. But people in the room are saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, here's, here's the, the litmus test. One well, of the greatest commands God gave us was to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you have never loved God at any point in your life, not with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are a sinner. That just levels the playing field. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. So what is the result? Paul says later on that the wages of sin is death. This means, yes, physical death, but more importantly, it means spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God in a place called hell. That's some really bad news, but this is why the gospel is the euangelion, the good news, the good word. What is the good news? But the free gift of God is eternal life. When Jesus died, he died for my sins and in my place. We stand guilty and condemned, but Jesus pays for our sins and forgives us and makes us clean. And he did this, Paul says, according to the scriptures. Long before Jesus was born, God promised that he would send a Messiah to die for our sins. The prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus, and here's what he wrote in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and a crane with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then Paul says in verse 4, And that he was buried. Christ was buried. I mean, that's the finality of death. He hung for six hours on the cross. He was dead and then he was buried. But he rose in victory, church, over death, hell, sin, Satan, and the grave. I mean, after Jesus died, they wrapped his body. They put him in a tomb. They sealed it. And for three days, think about it, three days. On the first day, he's dead. On the second day, he's dead. But on the third day, he put death to death. He was raised on the third day, Paul says, according to the scriptures. David was the forerunner of Christ. Jesus came from the line of David. So here's what was prophesied by David in the Psalms. Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The text says that Jesus was raised. I don't know if you see that in your Bible and that he was raised on the third day. That verb is in the perfect tense. That means something that happened in the past and the results carry over into the future. So that means that Jesus now is in the same state that he was when he was raised. He was raised in a physical body and today he still has a physical body. Jesus was raised alive and today he is still alive. But it's also in the passive voice, which means that something acted upon Jesus to raise him from the dead. And that was the power of God through the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. That is the substance of the gospel. Jesus died for our sin, was buried, and raised from the dead according to the scriptures. If you change the recipe, you don't have the gospel. If you add to it, it's not the gospel. In other words, if you teach people and tell people, That in order to be saved, to be right with God, you have to be baptized as an infant. That ain't the gospel. If you tell them that they have to do good works to be right with God, that's not the gospel. If you have to be confirmed, if you have to pay something off in purgatory, if you have to come back as something reincarnated because you've got to work off the bad, if you have to go to Mecca, if you have to give alms, if you have to go door-to-door selling subscriptions to the Watchtower magazine, whatever you say, if it's not, Jesus died, buried, and rose, it ain't the gospel. You can't subtract anything from the gospel. You can't say, well, you don't have to believe in Jesus. I mean, he's just a way, not the way. You don't have to believe that you're a sinner and allow Jesus to pay for your sin. You just got to be a good person. I mean, all faiths are eventually going to lead to God. That's not the gospel. You can't depart from the substance of the gospel and it won't be the gospel. For example, if you say, I don't have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead or any of that foolish miracle stuff. We all know that that never happens. Basically, we're all good people, and God's going to balance it all out in the end. That's not the gospel either, friends. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and raised again. That's the message, and that's the first priority of importance for the church to proclaim. Paul says, that's what I preach. That's what we keep preaching. That's the message. Beloved, we are to repeat the substance of the gospel everywhere we go with every person that we know. This message is meant to be repeated. It's meant to be preached, proclaimed, communicated. It's of the first importance. So let me ask you, how important is the gospel to you? When was the last time you told it to somebody else? That'll tell you how important it is. A couple of weeks ago, I had some bear patches out of my lawn. I bought some grass seed and I threw it out there and I watered it for days. And man, something crazy happened. These little shoots started to come up and it was beautiful. I do not understand the process of how grass grows, but I do understand this. I'm just country enough to understand this, that when you throw the seed out there, something happens. Now imagine if my wife came to me and she said, well, hey, sweetie, did you ever treat the lawn? And I said, baby girl, check this out. I went went and got some grass seed. I put that stuff in my hands. I looked at it. I read about it. I pondered it. I studied every single part of it. I know the grass seed inside and out. It's so amazing. I'm meditating about that seed. I've memorized that seed. My wife may look at me and say, well, you know, you can study that seed all you want. You can hold it, look at it, memorize it. But you're never going to see grass grow till you throw it out there. But I'm telling you, the gospel is amazing to talk about. It's amazing to study. It's amazing to memorize. It's amazing to look at. But people are never going to be saved unless we get it out there. The gospel, the purpose of the gospel is not for us to study it, but it's so that we would share it. We've got more classes teaching people about the gospel and less people getting about the gospel. We need to stop studying it so that we can go share it. The purpose of you being here is not for you to get more educated. It's so that you can be equipped and encouraged to go share the gospel. People's eternal destination is at stake. And the first priority for every believer should be the gospel. Amen. It's either amen or oh me at this point. I mean, Romans 10, 14 couldn't be more clear. How then, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him when they're not heard? And how will they hear without what? And that ain't talking about me. It's talking about every person who's ever come to know Jesus personally. You are a preacher. You are a evangelion who carousels. You are the person who's received the gospel so that you could give the gospel. So how are you doing with that, church? I mean, really, honestly, how are you doing with that? Who are you sharing with? I mean, in my phone right now, I have a list of probably about 80 people that I'm begging God for to be saved. What about you? I mean, I'm trying to share the gospel with people everywhere I go because it's at first importance and I want it to be for you. How are you doing? I can get better. And all your priorities that you have in life, if people said list your priorities from one to 10, would the gospel be at the top? Because if it's not, We've missed it. We can keep the priority of repeating the substance of the gospel. But secondly, Paul teaches us we can keep the priority of receiving the salvation of the gospel. The priority of receiving the salvation. Paul says in verse 1, I preached, you received, and you stand, but it's how you've been saved. Paul says, I preached you the gospel, and you received it. To receive means to welcome, to accept, and here it means to hear and to trust. Paul's saying, you opened your heart, your eyes and your ear, and you welcomed the gospel. And it's in this gospel that you stand. Again, the verb here, that you were saved, is in the perfect tense, which means it was something completed in the past and continues. So they've welcomed it and they're standing in it currently. Because their lives have been changed by it. As proof of what it means to receive the gospel and to stand on it, Paul gives us some examples through listing some people who received it and were changed by it and are still standing on it. So in verse 5 he says, And he appeared to Cephas. If you remember, Peter had been a denier of Jesus. He even wept at, at at just failing Jesus Christ, but he saw the resurrected Christ, and Peter went to be crucified upside down for his Lord. He took his stand on the gospel. Then Jesus appeared. He says to the twelve, that's talking about the twelve disciples. Remember how they carried away and ran away in fear? But when they saw the risen Jesus, they took a stand. Every single one of the apostles and the early disciples were stoned and persecuted, all for the exception of one. Because they were saved. They received it. They saw the resurrected Lord, and they took their stand on it, and it cost them their lives. And then Jesus appears to, he says there, to over 500 brethren at one time. That's the only place in Scripture we read about this. But I can tell you this, when Jesus got up from the dead, he didn't keep it a secret. And you and I aren't either. We aren't supposed to either. That's the point. Verse 7, he says this, then he appeared to James. Y'all know during Jesus' earthly ministry, James was a disbeliever and a skeptic. His own half-brother couldn't believe he was the Savior. But after he saw the resurrected Jesus, what happened to James? James' nickname throughout the New Testament world was camel knees. You know why? Because he prayed so much, his knees looked like he had camel's knees. He was changed, and he took his stand in the gospel because he had received the salvation. Verse 8, Paul says, And then last of all, the one untimely born, he appeared to me. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, we read about in Acts 9, and he received the salvation of the gospel, and he took his stand on the gospel. Paul gives his life defending and preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, Paul goes to prison for the gospel. So listen to me. If you are here today, if you are watching us by way of online, if you're driving down the road right now on 71, listen, the greatest priority you have in your life, the absolute greatest priority is your need to receive the loving and wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ. I mean, a couple who was not married came from China and they enrolled as students at Oklahoma University. And the woman heard the gospel and she was radically saved. Her boyfriend at the time was not a believer that they got married and they had a baby. And the father didn't want to take the baby to church. The wife wanted to go to church and worship her Lord. But the father said, no, you can't do that because we just left China where the communists have brainwashed us all. I don't want some church brainwashing my kid either. So she kept talking to him, and finally he said, Okay, here's what I'll do. You can take her to church, but I'm going to sit in that nursery and I'm going to sit in that preschool with her to make sure she isn't brainwashed. And, friends, after months of hearing the same story everywhere he went in every class with that little girl, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he lived a sinless life, he went to a cross, he died for our sins, and he was buried and raised again, this man got radically saved. He didn't get brainwashed, he got changed. See, this gospel, it reaches all people. This gospel can save you no matter what you've done, no matter what you think has happened in your life, no matter your religious background. This gospel is for you and for any and all who will just call upon the name of Jesus, put their faith in his death, burial and resurrection. He, too, can save you because it's for everybody. This gospel reaches all places. Some people will hear the gospel like I'm doing right now in the church. Some people will hear it in the bathroom. Some people will hear it out riding a horse. Some people hear it while they're shooting a gun. Some people hear it while they're fishing. Some people hear it in China. Some will hear it in Romania. It doesn't matter where because the gospel goes to all places, to all people. But can I tell you this? The gospel reaches all problems. Beloved, however, your problems are presenting themselves this morning. And I do not mean to be simplistic, but simply stated the answer to every man's problem is the, the Lord Jesus and his gospel. The answer to all of our problems is Jesus. The answer to all our problems is the gospel. So what do you do? You simply receive it. James 1:21 says this. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, that's called repentance. And in humility, receive the word, that's the gospel, which is able to do what? Save your souls. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. It's not enough, beloved. Listen to me. Some of you may have checked me out because you don't like my style. You don't like my shortness. You don't like my breath. You don't like my looks. I don't know. what You're just tired. Hey, come back in just for a minute, for two seconds, and I'll let you go back to sleep. It is not enough to believe in God. Many people believe in God. Even the demons believe in God, friends. You have to receive the salvation that Jesus is offering and be born again. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you realized that you were a sinner, separated from God, deserving of his wrath, and then turned? To Jesus, ask His forgiveness of your sin and trusted that He died for your sin, was buried and raised again to give you eternal life. Has that ever happened to you? Because believing in God is not enough. Receiving salvation is what you must do. So you say, I've always believed in God. Great. Have you ever received salvation? Two different questions. See, we can keep the priority of repeating the substance. We can keep the priority of receiving the salvation. And lastly, very quickly, we can keep the priority of remaining in the security of the gospel. Remain in the security of the gospel. Verse 2, Paul says this, By which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. First of all, this is not teaching that we can lose our salvation. It's simply teaching us that we may have never had it to begin with. Paul says you were saved unless your faith was worthless and you believed in vain. In other words, if when I profess Christ, my life hasn't changed, then there may be a problem. So if I'm saved, why do I need to hold fast to that? Well, let's think about salvation first. First. Here's something that may be new to you, but our salvation is kept by Christ and not us. Our holding on to Jesus is evidence that He's holding on to us. You'll come to find out that your salvation is not dependent upon you, it never was, never will be. Your salvation is always dependent upon Jesus. And if He saved you, He can keep you, you can never lose what He holds. It's His. He's never going to lose your salvation. So therefore, you can't. For someone to let go of their faith, for someone to deny Christ, for someone to kind of slip into the world and go their own way, listen, all that indicates is is that they've never truly believed in the first place. Secondly, salvation, you need to pay attention here, has three components. This will help you greatly. Salvation happens at a moment in time in the past and that's when we're saved from the penalty of sin. So if you've said, Hey, I've, I've been saved, that happened in a moment in time in your past, and you were saved from the penalty of sin. There was a point in time where you were justified before God, declared not guilty, and forgiven. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. You were brought from death to life. You were given the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, the Bible says it this way in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved. Did you notice the tense? Something that happened in the past. Salvation is a point in time in the past where you were justified before God. That's a part of what it means to be saved. We call this in church world justification. Where it's justified, never sinned. I've been forgiven salvation also has a second part it's also happening in the present not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin we are being saved from the power of sin we're being saved right now from the power of sin over our lives you and i are being made like jesus christ every day we're being conformed more and more to the image of christ listen 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The scripture speaks of it being in the past tense, but also something right now in the present tense. You and I are experiencing salvation right now, being saved from the power of sin, and we call that in church world sanctification. So for those who have been justified, they will be sanctified. But let me just push pause right here for everybody to understand. This is one of the major differences between what we believe and what the Catholic Church believes or other works-based religions believe. Catholics say this. Other people say this. I have to do enough good so that God can let me into heaven. And if I don't, I go to purgatory and work it off. I go, when I die, somebody light some candles and pray, and hopefully I get in. That's a misunderstanding that I have to be sanctified before I can be justified. Justification always comes first with true gospel salvation. I trust that Jesus died for me and made me right and forgave me for it all. And then I'm progressively being made more like Christ. Listen to me if I have not received Christ, I stand no chance of ever being like Him in sanctification to begin with. That's trying to make sinners become like saints when they haven't become a saint yet. It's like, why do sinners do what they do? Because they're lost. Then salvation also will happen in the future. Not only are we saved from the penalty of sin and justification, saved from the power of sin and sanctification, but we will eventually be saved from the presence of sin. One day you and I will stand with Jesus in heaven and there will be no more sin, no more effects of sin. It's just all going to be new and awesome. And we call that in the church glorification. Paul says in Romans 13, he says, For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Well, I thought we were saved in the past. You are. I thought we were saved in the present. You are. We're going to be saved in the future. Yeah. In other words, (laughs) y'all having fun yet? I'm getting tired. We have have been saved from our sin, we are being saved from sinning, and one day we'll be saved from ever sinning. You see, salvation through the gospel is both an event and a process, and you have to have both. You have to receive the gospel and be saved. And if you truly experience that, you will be experienced what it means to be saved. That's why Paul says you were saved if you hold fast. If you keep going in it, if you keep growing, that's the evidence that you've been saved in the first place. There's a possibility you have heard the gospel and prayed to receive Christ and it was vain and it was empty. So then how can I know if I've ever truly been saved? If you truly continue in the gospel, you are saved. When I was saved at the age of 20, I was as saved as anybody could ever be. But I've continued to be saved since that day, growing in my knowledge of Jesus and his salvation. Listen, if you dive into a pool, you're as wet as you're ever going to be. But you can always go deeper. The moment you trust Jesus, you're as saved as you're ever going to be. But you'll want to go deeper. But if you don't hold fast, this is evidence that you believe in vain. It's not just about praying and never thinking about your salvation again. The gospel is something that comes in and changes you and continues to change you. It's an event and it's a process. For example, think about marriage. We have an event called a wedding. Where we stand before each other and promise things to one another that we don't truly understand. I mean, think about it. When I was 18, I said it meant my vows, but I really didn't know what it meant to love in sickness and in health. I didn't know what it meant to love in being poor and richer. I definitely didn't know what it meant to love until death do us part. So the event is the wedding. But there's a process, and that's called a marriage. And the process is where I show what I meant at the event. Salvation has an event. It's when you stand before God and make the vow to him, that, Lord, I'm going to follow you, that, Lord, I receive. I-, I receive your promise. I give you a promise. But there's also a process, and it's called holding fast, and that's where you show what you meant at the event. So Paul says in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to call an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace of God I am what I am. His grace is not in me in vain. I have labored more than all them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. My faith and his grace are not in vain. So why did Paul do what he did? He met Jesus. And he was fully all in. He fully gave his life to Christ. He was changed. Because many people that pray a prayer or say something don't really embrace Christ. There's no great change in them. And Paul says, listen, I am what I am because of grace. It's mentioned three times right there. When we are holding fast, the grace of God is evident in our life, and we readily acknowledge that I am what I am by the grace of God. Verse 9, Paul says, I was not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's the proof that Paul has been radically changed. Andy Stanley, whom I don't agree with a lot of his theology, but he got this one right. Listen, he said this. Just as sin sometimes results in bad things happening to good people, so grace creates the possibility of good things happening to undeserving people. God's grace is what He uses to make sure that you and I don't get what we deserve. We deserve death, hell, and eternal separation. God's grace is not reserved for good people. God's grace is reserved for him to get the glory. And if you're good, he doesn't get the glory. Because I've trusted in Jesus, believed, and received his promise of salvation, grace is my eternal security. I came to Christ by, by grace. I was saved by grace. I've been sanctified by grace. I remain fast by grace. Ultimately, I'll be just ultimately taken to heaven because of God's grace. It's all because of God's grace. There's nothing I can do but hold fast to grace that's been given. A few years before John Newton died, a friend was having breakfast with him, and their custom was read the Bible after the meal. And because Newton's eyes were growing dim, his friend would read, and then Newton would comment briefly on the passage. That day, the selection was from 1 Corinthians 15. And when the words, By the grace of God, I am what I am, were read, Newton was silent for several minutes. Then he said this, he said, Dear friend, I am not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor evil and, and only want to cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be, and soon I shall put off mortality and with it all this sin. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, But what I can say is I'm not what I used to be a sinner in need of grace. At 82, Newton said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. 2 Timothy 1.12 says this, For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. Beloved, are you doubting your salvation and you need some assurance? I mean, do you want to know for sure that if you were to die right now, that you could go to be with God in heaven? I mean, what are you holding fast to? Because see, whatever you're holding on to is going to determine it all. If you're trying to hold on to your good works, how many is enough? Or your lack of them? Are you trying to hold on to your behavior? I'm just going to be more moral or your lack of it? I'm not as moral, so therefore I can't make it. Your past? My past isn't right. I'm not going to make it. Or maybe it's your present. I think I'm I'm okay. No matter the answer to that question, the only thing that any of us can hold on to is the gospel. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Dr. Jerry Vines, a great preacher from old, would say it this way, I've been saved from the, from the guttermost to the uttermost. Verse 11, he says this, he says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Here's the priority to repeat the substance of the gospel, to receive the salvation of the gospel, and to remain in the security of the gospel. Can you imagine right now, I hope this never happens and I don't even wish it upon anyone, but can you imagine right now that this morning when you woke up, that your house was on fire? Imagine when you woke up, you smelled the smoke and you felt the heat, and you went and you looked and you saw your kitchen was aflame. And as you stood there, you noticed that it started to spread throughout the rest of the house. And out of panic, you didn't know what to do, but something hit you. I've got to go get the kids and my family. So you got your entire family, and you ran out of the house. And as you run out of the house, you remembered, we probably should call 911. And you called 911, and here they come. Here come the fire trucks. And when when they get up and they show up at your house, you notice that they don't have any hoses. And they don't even mess with any water. But the, the firemen get off the truck, and they have these hedge clippers. And they come up to your bushes, and they just start trimming your bushes. And you're like, what in the world are you guys doing? My house is on fire. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. I mean, that's kind of important. But you know what? You're, 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 your hedges are trash, bro. You need to tighten them up. You would be freaking out. And then you're like, some more people jumped off. And then there's other, these other firefighters. And they are in your driveway, and they're like mixing up this concrete. And you're like, what are you guys doing? My house is on fire. And they're like, bro, have you seen your driveway? This is unacceptable. Somebody's going to get hurt. They're going to trip in this crack, break their mother's back. It's going to be bad. So they start filling in the concrete. You're like, bro, the house. They're like, bro, it's all right. We'll get to that. Right now, we're just going to focus on this. Now, Jerry's here. And Jerry would tell you that no firefighter is ever going to do that. You know what a firefighter is going to do? He's going to get out of the truck in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, twentieth, fiftieth priority is to put out that fire. And I'm here today to tell you folks that God says the number one priority is to repeat, receive, and remain in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we get caught into other issues that may be important that can help our church, we're going to lose it, and it's all going to burn down. The priority is the gospel. We are called to reach people. We are not called to make this world the best, most happy, and comfortable place from which people can die and go to hell. My evangelism professor said it this way. You and I cannot air condition people's train rides to hell. God has called us as a church and as a people to reach a lost, dying, sinful, broken world with the gospel. So you guys come, whoever's playing for, for us today, if you would make your way here. So let me ask you this question as we briefly, very quickly close this message. Let me ask you, if I were to ask you right now to come up on the stage and share your testimony. Could you tell me the time that you believed and received in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus? Because if you can't, I question whether you were saved. If I don't know how I was saved, I'm probably not saved. If I can't tell others what happened to me, I I probably had nothing happen to me. And beloved, I want you to know, if you've never received the Lord, if if you can't give a testimony, why not today? In just a few moments, I'm going to give you that opportunity. I mean, if I were to ask you right now, hey, hey, would you go out with me this afternoon and can we just share the gospel with people? And you would say, Pastor, you got to do all the talking because I don't really know how to share the gospel. Can I just ask you this question, why? I mean, you've been a believer all this time and you don't know how to share the gospel. And that's not meant to guilt you. That's to show you and we've lost the priority, right? I mean, students, let me ask you this question. Are you going to go through your entire school year Or your entire high school career, and you're never going to share the gospel with people that are around you 24-7? I mean, one of the most heartbreaking things that ever happened to me is after I came to know Christ at the age of 20, I realized that two of my high school friends knew Jesus. And I was in a war and could have died very easily, had some very close calls, but you were willing to go through an entire high school career and never share with me the hope that you had. And if I'd have died, I'd have busted hell wide open. I mean, you're not there to get an education. That is secondary. You're there to be a missionary. What about your friends? Do your friends know what the most important thing in your life is, folks? What about your family? Do they know? I mean, do your coworkers know your testimony? If not, why not? How will they hear unless we share? And then, lastly, I would just encourage you that if you want to go with us in the Dominican, start saving your money now. Because <laughs> we're going to go. We've got to go across the seas, but we've also got to go across the street. Sometimes we just need to go across the seat. Would you stand with me? Father, in these moments, Lord, I pray that your your Holy Spirit is speaking and doing some great things. Listen, beloved, if you were within the sound of my voice today and you know for sure... That you are just confused, that, that you have doubts, you have discouragement. You don't know where you stand with the Lord. But you want to be sure. I'm going to ask you just to pray a simple prayer, but you've got to mean this from your heart. Prayer won't save you, Jesus does. So you so you've got to be trusting Him, not what you say. But you really got to trust Him. you want to be saved today, if you want to be right with God, you want to have everything change, your eternity change, but have hope and abundant life now, to be forgiven of all your sin, to be cleansed, to have a relationship with God, just say something like this from your heart to his. Lord Jesus, I realize that I am a sinner, and I need your mercy, and I ask for your forgiveness. I really believe that you died to pay for my sin. That you were buried for me. And that you were raised to give me eternal life. Christ, save me. I receive your gift. Change me. Thank you, Lord. Help me to hold fast. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed a prayer like that and you meant it from your heart, you come down here. We'd love to know about it. We'd love to share with you what some of the next steps are.